Welcome to the LDS Women Project podcast, sharing stories of diversity and faith from women of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome. Um, I am Elizabeth Osler. I am the Editor-in-Chief at the LDS Women's Project, and we are very excited to have um, all of you joining us today with this conversation with um, Melinda Wilwright Brown on and her book, Eve and Adam, Discovering the Beautiful Balance. I do want to also point out our and introduce our editorial team. I didn't tell them I was doing this. So surprise team, I'm, I'm also introducing you. So we have um, Trina Cottle. She is our um, interview editor. And um, Trina, you can wave. And um, we also have Rosemary Demas. She is our um, disciple editor. And then we also have Allie Brown, who is our director of fundraising. So um, this is our team and we are, we've been really looking forward to this. I'm going to uh, turn the time over to our director of fundraising, Allie Brown, to um, talk about that. And then we will take it from there. Hi everyone. Um, like Liz said, I am the director of fundraising and I am also Mindy Brown's daughter-in-law and I help her run the Brave Like Eve account. So I'm obviously very excited about this event happening. Um, I just wanted to start by thanking you all for coming um, and put in a plug for donating to the Latter-day Saint Women Project. If you enjoy this event tonight um, and want to support our work, um, I will put a link in the chat to our donate page. Uh, we are a nonprofit um, that does all of this as volunteers. No one in the project gets paid and we just have some basic operating costs to do what we do. Um, and your support really makes a big difference. Oh, thank you, thank you, Allie. Um, so tonight, how we're gonna run this evening is uh, Mindy's gonna talk to us and um, for about 20, 25-ish minutes. And then, um, and then we're gonna open it up to you all for questions. And so start thinking about your questions during um, her presentation. You can go ahead and just like put those in the chat or if you wanna hold on to them until we open it up, that's great. Um, and so, and I have a couple of questions too. So when she's done presenting, I'll remind you again, the questions are coming. I'll ask a couple to get you warmed up and then um, we will start. Cool, everybody ready? Um, and it was, thanks for those of you who um, commented in the chat about where you're from. We've got people in North Carolina and Provo and Salt Lake and Maryland, I'm in Brooklyn. Um, in Canada. Hello, Canada. So um, welcome everyone and across the time zones. Um, so without, without further ado, please let me introduce um, Mindy and the book. So um, Melinda Wilwright Brown is the author of Eve and Adam, Discovering the Beautiful Balance, which was published by Desert Book in March, 2020, just as the world was going into COVID lockdown. The book grew out of her passion for solving problems, particularly those facing women. Prior to its release, she spent three years studying, researching, and praying about Eve, 
the fall and the need for mortal experiences and how our heavenly parents feel about their daughters and sons. She says she didn't set out to write a book, but all of the work just mysteriously grew into a book. And so when she's not at her desk, she is off, she can be found supporting wonderful organizations such as the Fight for the New Drug, Days for Girls, and she currently sits on the board of the Elizabeth Smart Foundation. Um, she received her bachelor's degree in economics from BYU. Um, Mindy and her husband, Doug, are the parents of four children and have three darling grandsons. And her very happiest days um, would be spent with all of them exploring their favorite South Carolina beach together, searching for sand dollars. She's here to talk to us about this book. And this book is a poignant and provocative meditation on what it means to be a human, striving in the lone and dreary world to develop godly attributes. Using the garden as a guide and our first parents, even Adam, as examples, Mindy provides insight, encouragement, and hope that emboldens us to be courageous like Eve, to partake of the fruit and leave our metaphorical Eden, to wrestle with the complexities of relationships and the paradox of agency, reminding us that through our savior, Jesus Christ, transformation is possible and that we can realize our heavenly parents' greatest wish that, us, that we become like them. So welcome, Mindy, we're very excited. And um, I'm going to turn the time over to you. Okay. Thank you. Wow. That was like the most beautiful summary of my book I've ever heard. <laughs> you should have written the book. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> I loved listening to that. I am so happy to see all of you. And uh, I'm just glad you're here. And I have thought and pondered and prayed quite a bit over the last few weeks about what the, the perfect message that I can share with you in just really like 15 to 20 minutes from the book is before we start just having a great discussion and a Q&A sort of period, which I'm really, really looking forward to. Um, I have been blessed in, in lots of different venues, a lot of Zoom in the last year and a half to present to lots of different groups. And um, just the other night on Sunday night, I spoke to a stake of 18 year old BYU freshman women and had such a wonderful time with them. And as I kind of considered these two side by side with each other, I thought that was sort of like the most entry-level presentation to really introduce them to Eve. And I feel like my hunch is those of you here tonight are like that opposite end of the spectrum. Um, that you are the ones who have been seeking and searching and um, have found amazing nuggets and gems of wisdom along your path. And so actually I wanted to just start by reading a portion, just a little bit from the acknowledgement section of my book. Um, as I prayed and, and thought hard about this early this morning, I really feel like this um, paragraph was written for all of you. And so this is on page 162, if you have it. Um, and so this is, this is where I would begin. My thanks to those whose names I may not know, but whose faith I have certainly felt. The countless searching souls who have pled and wrestled with divinity for explanations to the challenges of mortality, especially those related to the relationship between men and women. 
I bear witness to the cumulative effect of the prayers of so many. Thanks to each of our separate but similar efforts, I have repeatedly been overcome with the sense that the veil or the earth is beginning to burst. I am so thankful for the continuing restoration of the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to start there because um, I mean that so sincerely. I, I felt so profoundly during the years of my research and writing that I just happened to be the vehicle for this message to come through in, in this particular form at this time. But it was very much because of hundreds and thousands, I, I truly believe thousands, if not more than that, hundreds of thousands of women just like me searching to understand better, uh, to understand our first parents better, to understand our heavenly parents better, to understand our relationships with one another better. And um, I so many times I felt whisperings and promptings and just felt like there was an army of angels around me encouraging me to keep going because I was on to something that that there was an audience wanting to hear and read um, and be better equipped to share better. Um, in so many ways, I feel like this book, I really meant it to just be a super convenient toolkit that if you just had it, you would know all the good quotes from general authorities are in there so that if at any point you heard something that you just knew was not correct in a gospel doctrine class or something, it just could be at your fingertips and you could find it so fast and say, ah, hold it, this prophet said this or whatever. I just wanted it so there for you. Um, because if you're like me, so many times you've, you've sat in a conversation or in a lesson and heard something that you just know is not accurate. And it's hard to find the words and be able to articulate quickly um, how to correct that and, and how to share your personal witness that in fact, our heavenly parents plan for us is beautifully balanced. And if we're feeling unseen or unheard, that's a problem with the fallen world and not a problem with the plan. And um, I really, gains such a strong testimony of that, that the plan is perfect, but unfortunately we're implementing it in a very imperfect place. And so um, with that, let me share um, a couple of slides with you. And we won't be on the slides for too long because I think it's hard to not see faces better, but um, if you'll put those up, Liz, we're gonna start with, and I think a lot of you, um, see us on Brave Like Eve and follow what Allie and Candace and I do there. And so you know that today we had a post about this beautiful painting of Joan of Arc by um, Jules Bastion Lepage that hangs in the Met. And I just wanted to show this for a minute for several reasons. One is because, uh, and you may be able to see, that's actually my print of it hanging behind me, but um, I take so much inspiration from this painting. I love the notion that while Joan clearly realizes she's having a spiritual experience, uh, it's it seems as if she's not aware that there are actually three angels right behind her. And I have felt that way. Um, but I also think bigger than that, um, and, and in fact, these angels in researching this painting a little bit 
the, the soldier you see in front is meant to represent Michael, Adam. So that's super appropriate. And the two women behind are meant to represent the saints, Margaret and Catherine. But um, I think I have a real personal witness of angelic assistance from those that we love, whose stories we know and understand and honor, and whose work and dreams we are trying to propel and perpetuate um, even after their passing. And so it's my personal opinion that Eve is very much interested in the sorts of things each of us here tonight is working on to find this better balance between um, the divine feminine and the divine masculine and, and help it work together better. Um, Liz, if you'll go to the next slide. Uh, Joan is known for having said, and this is recorded in, in her um, journals and things that others had written even back in the 1400s, which is remarkable. Um, this great quote, she said, go forward bravely, fear nothing, trust in God, all will be well. And I like to think that that's maybe the message that those three angels were delivering to her. Um, that is the message I feel my angels delivering to me all the time to keep going and keep trying and that things will work out and all will be well. I think that's the message of mortality and, and ultimately, I hope by the end of my book and the final pages, readers recognize that like Liz described in that beautiful summary she um, shared with us, that it's really about how to live a life well by understanding the plan. Um, and I think we are just in an incredible period, a moment in history. Um, each of our members of the current first presidency have spoken out about Eve's courage and her amazing role in really an unprecedented way. And so let's just look at those quickly. The first is by uh, President Don H. Oaks. He said, some Christians condemn Eve for her act of eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge, concluding that she and her daughters are somehow flawed by it, not the Latter-day Saints. Informed by revelation, we celebrate Eve's act and honor her wisdom and courage in the great episode called The Fall. I just, I love that because clearly we are unique among our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. And we have such a message that is so empowering that I, I have personally experienced in talking to so many um, different faith tradition brothers and sisters, how, what a novel and exciting idea this is. I mean, they've, I've, I've had conversations where they say things like, wow, I hope you're right. Like that would be amazing if that's correct. And I think, well, we are. So <laughs> I'm happy for that. And I'm glad that we can share that message. Um, okay, next we have President Irings. And I love what he had to say about it. He says, you have her example to follow. By revelation, Eve recognized the way home to God. She knew that the atonement of Jesus Christ made eternal life possible in families. She was sure as you can be that as she kept her covenants with her heavenly father, the redeemer and the Holy Ghost would see her and her family through whatever sorrows and disappointments would come. She knew she could trust in them. Like Eve, you may feel the same joy that she felt as you journey back home. Um, what a great model that is to share with our daughters and our young women who we love and our young men that we love and our sons. That's really important. Um, I love suggesting that everybody could follow her example, whether you're male or female, you can follow her brave and courageous example. And then this absolute classic statement that I know you're all familiar with by President Nelson, 
who said, we need women who have the courage and vision of our mother Eve. Um, and that talk, that's from a plea to my sisters that is just positively packed full of wonderful encouragement for each of us um, and all of our brothers as well. So that's really thrilling. Um, now, one thing I thought I would share and um, maybe I don't, if it's not too hard, Liz, do you wanna just turn the slides off for just a second and then we'll put them back on in a minute. I thought I would just tell you a little bit about um, briefly settling on the title for this book. Um, I don't often share, but it's a small group and I, I feel like you're all friends and loved ones. So I'll say that my working title for this book was Exalting Eve. And I loved that title. And it was a really, really helpful working title because it it uh, kept me focused on what the point of this project was as I wrote. And, and that's a long process as you can probably imagine or you know from experience. And so um, that title was very dear to my heart, but I was pretty sure when uh, Deseret Book expressed interest in, in publishing it, that that title might need to change. And sure enough, we decided that we would look for some other options. And it took us a while to settle on what we ended up with, even Adam, and even before we came to this, an interesting thing happened when I was about halfway through um, working on, on the manuscript, I came to a point where I really felt blocked. And it, it wasn't just writer's block, it was something different than that. And um, I felt like there was, a, there was a message intended by that. And I tried to figure out what was going on. And Ultimately, I felt like I needed to take about a week and go back to my books a little bit, go back into the research and figure out what piece was missing. I just had this really, um, it really, it was, it was an angelic whispering of you're missing one thing. Go back. I'll help you find it. It's there. You'll see. And pretty quickly, I realized what I was missing is that I hadn't gained my own personal witness of how crucial the partnership between Eve and Adam was. I um, had been very keenly aware that, that she had not been given her due throughout history, and I wanted to help rectify that. Um, and I still believe that that's true, but what I learned during that struggling period of writing was that she was not complete without him and he was not complete without her. And the pain I had felt for so long earlier was in recognizing that he wasn't complete without her, but likewise, she needed him. And it was when I revisited some of that and had kind of a real heart to heart with myself and letting go of some pride and recognizing that I needed to really respect their partnership and that I wasn't, she wouldn't have thought I was doing her a favor by not honoring him in that way. And that I needed to do that properly for it to continue. And as I realized that it was just spectacular to see how the second half just poured out. It was just there and ready and it came together. So I am just a huge believer that um, the way forward with um, supporting uh, the interdependence of men and women is to do it together. And so if we could put the slides back on, um, 
I think we are in a really unique situation here as we head into our third year of Come Follow Me, um, and it's the Old Testament. And so let's just look at this next slide, Liz. Um, I only want to take a few more minutes, so we'll go quickly here. But this next one is a great quote from Elder Holland that I think gives us a little bit of direction as we move forward into January. He says, yours is the grand tradition of Eve, the mother of, the hum of all the human family, the one who understood that she and Adam had to fall in order that men and women might be and that there would be joy. Yours is the grand tradition of Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, without whom there could not have been those magnificent patriarchal promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which bless us all. We thank all of you, including our own mothers, and tell you there's nothing more important in this world than participating so directly in the work and glory of God in bringing to pass the mortality and earthly life of his daughters and sons so that immortality and eternal life can come in those celestial realms on high. I love this quote because I think it is absolutely remarkable how much we know about our matriarchs. We're going to hear a lot of people talking about the patriarchs of the Old Temp of the Old Testament, and I would just like to issue a uh, call to action to each of us. There are 31 of us here right now, and any who listen in the future to this, to spend next year talking about the patriarchs and the matriarchs. We know every one of these women's names. We know their stories. We know their courtship details. We know their struggles with motherhood. Um, we know so many things about them. And the other thing that we know, and let's look at one final slide. This is an excellent quote from President Ezra Taft Benson, where he explains, and, and it's later in this same talk that he explains this specifically, but he says that the patriarchal priesthood is equivalent to the familial priesthood. And again, I'd suggest that we all get brave and practice articulating that, practice raising our hands so that when we hear things in lessons in the coming months, we can express a little bit of added information there. What he said in this talk was the order of priesthood spoken of in the scriptures is sometimes referred to as the patriarchal order because it came down from father to son. But this order is otherwise described in modern revelation as an order of family government, where a man and woman enter into a covenant with God, just as did Adam and Eve, to be sealed for eternity, to have posterity, and to do the will and work of God throughout their mortality. Okay, Liz, you can put the slides down. Thank you. Um, and so I just really would like to encourage every one of us to speak up and bring the women forward. I think this year, as we studied the Doctrine and Covenants, we've been really blessed to hear lots more of the women's stories. I'm sorry they're not canonized, but that doesn't mean they're not there. They are journaled and recorded in so many instances, and we've all been blessed by learning more about them. And I think we can do the same as we as we launch into our study of the Old Testament. Um, and then I would just wrap up my thoughts by sharing with you one bit of just the happiest news. And, and to me, this, this is just profound to me. Um, I happened to have an appointment scheduled this morning that had been on my calendar for a couple of months to visit the Provo City Center Temple and do initiatory work this morning. 
And uh, it's Tuesday morning, so it was the first time it had been opened since the end of end of day on Friday and Saturday. And apparently on Friday, all the temples around the world got a message from the first presidency that another adjustment would be made. And when I entered that beautiful foyer of the Provo City Center Temple, there were two women at the recommend desk. And yes, Lorraine is cheering. It, it was exciting. I mean, I could not believe my eyes. And as I walked up to the woman who reached her hand out to take my recommend, I said, I've never seen a woman where you are before. And she said, it's our first day. We are so happy. And I was overwhelmed. I get to teach a temple prep class to about 60 BYU freshmen right now. Oh, Lorraine, I, this is, she's getting teary. That's how I feel, Lorraine. That's exactly how I feel. Um, and we had just recently talked about the symbolism inherent in those two who really stand guard at the door of the temple in a very grand eternal scheme. And I think we are at such a pivotal point of history, the history of this planet and this plan that it's now understood by this awesome first presidency that we have, that that role of guarding the temple is not limited to those ordained in the priesthood, but it's for those with the authority of the power of the priesthood in their lives because of our covenants. And that includes us. And so I just think the veil is truly beginning to burst. And in the coming days and weeks and months, who knows how rapidly we're gonna see more changes and I am so grateful. I'm so grateful for every one of you because like I started with, I believe so wholeheartedly that it has been a group effort to get us to this point. And we're each doing our part and carrying that little piece that we are specially equipped to see through and um, carry out on behalf of all of our sisters and brothers. And for that, I am so grateful. I am so grateful. And I'll close that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for that um, beautiful presentation. And um, I too am very moved by um, that new development, I wasn't aware of it, and it makes me all the more eager to, to get back to the temple now that they're opening up. Um, so thank you again. So as I was saying before, um, we're going to open this up to all of you to, because we really actually want to have a conversation about this, and we want to invite you into this conversation, and that, um, too, that this is, a, I hope that we can all together create a space where we can explore and have make generous assumptions towards each other as we um, are brave like Eve and engage in conversation. So um, yeah, so I think like, let's jump into it and, you know, participate and ask those messy questions. And so speaking of that, so um, one, I like you, Mindy, I'm starting at the end of the book. So those of you okay. who have the book, I'm um, going to pull a quote from um, page 156. So in here you write, as we learn from the true story of Adam and Eve, life demands courage. So I have a little bit more, but I, I think it was very um, important that you said the true story. 
So um, as we learn from the true story of Eve and Adam, life demands courage. Watching the heroic efforts reminds us that mortality is sweaty, messy, uncomfortable work. There's something, there is simply no avoiding getting dirty. We've been both warned and assured that this is a necessary, this is necessarily the case. So two things about this. One, going back to that, there's a true story that, you know, there's a lot of people out who believe this to be a myth and maybe even people in this room believe it to be a myth, like a beautiful myth. So um, my first question is, is for you, what does it mean for it to be a true story? And then two, can you expand more on the messiness part of it? Yes. Okay. So to the first portion of that, um, I would say that there was definitely a period of time in my research that I did think it doesn't really matter if it's true or not. Um, and perhaps it isn't, perhaps it, it is a really important myth or parable, like there are lots of parables that we've learned amazing things by. And, um, you know, it, it makes no difference to me if there was actually a good Samaritan, it's still an important message that has affected my life. Um, but in this case, I have to side with uh, Elder Holland, who made a great statement that it actually really does matter that we understand that these were real people. And to me, the reason that is, and this is so hard for me to put into words, I'll see if I can do this um, effectively. But I think it's very, very tempting. And what we see happening throughout history and throughout Christianity and even beyond Christianity, a lot of people embrace this myth uh, origin story, is it's tempting to take the world we live in now, look back to this story, and bend that story to fit us. And so we hear things like, um, the I think the most common way that we see that uh, implemented is by by interpreting the idea that they wanted to run and hide once they ate the fruit and realized they had really messed up. And we apply it that way. And I think while there's benefit to seeing it on lots of different levels, and there's so many symbols um, in life and in the gospel to be multivalent and have all these different layers to them. And, and the meaning is awesome that way when you have all these layers. The fact that these are actually our first parents and that these were noble, noble spirits, a spirit son and daughter who were chosen specifically for this incredibly pivotal role makes me read the story differently. I much prefer to look at their story and then see how it applies to me because they are real people who truly deserve our um, honor and respect for the courage they had to act as proxy for each of us. And I think a far more useful message to pull from their story, rather than looking now backwards and saying, everybody messes up, I can repent and I can be forgiven and then move on. Instead, look at them at the beginning and say, look at the courage they had to recognize 
that it was more important to make progress and move into a realm where they could actually begin becoming like their heavenly parents and working their way home again than to stay in this very comfortable, easy place. Because I think so often we have um, both blessings and commandments that are either kind of an omission or a commission sort of balance, right? And, and they're mutually exclusive. We have to choose like they did with the trees and which of the two big commandments they were going to obey. Um, we've got these options and it's, to me, I think it's often easier to do the passive thing of not doing the thing I'm not supposed to do mm. rather than do the harder active thing of doing that thing I'm supposed to do, but I don't really know how to do it. And it requires taking a brave step forward, often into uncertainty and a little bit of fuzzy darkness and trusting that you'll figure it out as you go. And I think that's the power of their story. I think that's a far more um, empowering, meaningful way to interpret their story than working backwards, because in working backwards, it has allowed so much misunderstanding and misapplication that has resulted in the poor, abusive, horrific treatment of women through centuries and millennia. And to me, when you flip the narrative and recognize it's actually a true story, and these were unbelievably noble chosen people, really probably right below the savior in terms of nobility and, um, and devotion and dedication to the plan. It, it empowers us to recognize, wow, like I have that in my spiritual DNA. I am, I too am a son or daughter of heavenly parents who want me to work my way back to them by becoming like them. And so I just think that's really empowering. And, and I think um, to, to kind of get to that second point you asked about, it is so messy and potentially dirty and sweaty and awful because we're dealing with agency first and foremost. Um, I, think, I think agency, I see it as so fundamental that the atonement came as the next level on top of agency. And when we look at everybody having agency, especially in a fallen world, a lot of people are gonna abuse that agency and they do. And that's why so many of us get hurt and get sullied and get dirtied from that interaction. It's, it's just like this tangled web of agency, agency clash is kind of what I think of it as. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so again, everyone, um, I'm going to ask one more follow-up question and then open it up to you. So if you have questions, you can put them in the chat or um, use the feature down at the bottom. Um, if you see reactions and do raise your hand, then we can call on you. Whichever is your preferred method is great for us. Um, so going back to that messiness and agency, I, I totally agree. And in fact, I had a personal experience this year, a real growth experience and invitation to really trust in this plan and our heavenly parents that really really challenged me like in a way I hadn't been uh, challenged in a while and part of what I was so angry about was agency and I was just like this is so messed up 
And at the same time, like I understood, right. It was holding that paradox of like, I understood and, and fundamentally believe in agency, but when I'm dealing with the real consequence of agency, it was just so incredibly painful that I was just like, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm not into this plan of yours. Right. Um, Absolutely. And so, um, Ashley, are you, are you, are you, I see you in there nodding like you get it, um, is that, right, but so then that brings me to this other quote in your book on page 122, where you say, Heavenly Father is more concerned with effectiveness than efficiency. That's uncomfortably contrary to our modern, the sooner the better attitude. Um, and then I want to jump because of context, um, jump just another line. And it says the process of trying and failing and trying again requires advanced agency demonstrated by persistence, resilience, and determination. God is after durable learning, deep understanding, gaining through experience. This is powerful enough to affect lasting change. And it's like that lasting change is like, I want it but I don't always want to do all the things to get me there. Cause it really hurts sometimes. Absolutely. So true. So true. I agree completely. Um, I was just at, at the event just the other night, I was talking about the phrase that psychologists sometimes use where they, where they compare a wicked learning environment to a, um, to a, a kind learning environment and kind of the difference between the two. And it's so fascinating that they chose that term a wicked learning environment because the way that mortality has been designed is like the perfect wicked learning environment. And what it really comes down to that these educational psychologists have figured out so well, and it's all documented with all sorts of data and everything, is that the difference in the stickiness of the learning and that durability of that learning is like night and day. A kind learning environment, it just doesn't soak in. It doesn't last. It doesn't affect change the way that the hard stuff does. And um, I am just a huge, huge fan of efficiency. If any of you are familiar with the book, Cheaper by the Dozen, that's a kind of an old family favorite of ours. And the father in that is an efficiency expert. And um, we joke about that all the time. But I think it is fascinating that in fact, efficiency isn't efficient if it doesn't actually work. And so even though sometimes we look at the trial and error messiness of life where we just have to keep learning over and over. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure every one of us has thought at times, um, you know, why in the world am I having to go through this again? Like I've done this 10 times before. I thought I learned this lesson. Um, the fact is like, there's another layer that we're still getting to and it's not a waste of time. It's like, it's what we have time for is to figure it out and to keep figuring it out better um, and helping those around us figure it out too. And so I think that's great. I, that's fun to hear you pick out those quotes, Liz. Thank you. Of course, thank you. Um, so let's open, I mean, I could, I could have this conversation all day long, but I really <laughs> want to invite the rest of you to participate. What are some of the thoughts that you have come up for you or questions that you have um, from Mindy? Again, you can either put it in the chat or raise a hand. Yeah, Melissa, go ahead and unmute yourself. 
So I just wanted to thank you for the um, challenge to recognize the matrix as we teach gospel doctrine. I'm a gospel doctrine teacher. So I always try to, you know, I make a point to mention women or mention heavenly mother in every lesson I teach, because I think it is so important. So I'm grateful for the encouragement um, to continue to do that. And I'm looking forward to learning more about these women and recognizing them and all their amazing work that they've done. But I also loved your thoughts on um, looking at their story from the other perspective, from the beginning, moving forward and, and how, you know, in our own lives, growth and discomfort go hand in hand. And that can be really challenging, but necessary. So it's good to know we aren't the first ones to do it. And we have her Eve, right there with us, encouraging us to do the same thing. So thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. Thank you. And that just reminded me one thing, Walls, whoever wants to be next with a question gets that formulated and raises their hand or whatever. Um, I did, I did want to just share actually one other little call to action. And I, I hope, I hope this is taken in the right spirit. I think I mean, I know I'm among friends here and we can share these personal things, but um, like Melissa just said, I'm a really big fan of talking about heavenly parents anytime we possibly can. I think that that is in, in my um, interactions I've had with Deseret Book and all the other groups that, you know, that I've been able to kind of be part of here and there in the last year and a half with this. Um, I think that that's a really important way forward for us. I think it will come through the um, interconnectedness of approaching them as a duo, as a divine pair. And so I think that's really wise for us to do it that way. But it has also come to my attention recently. And so I would just, I would ask really sincerely, that we could all unite our prayers in this, that the church, you may know, has a style guide. And um, in the style guide, Heavenly Parents is not capitalized. And that there have been changes over, over year, different years. You'll, you'll see it used as a phrase in general conference. And there was a little period of time there that they would allow, it, it appears in my research about it, that they would allow the speakers to determine if they wanted it capitalized or not. And we saw it capitalized quite a bit. And then um, they've gotten pretty serious about sticking to the style guide and those um, capital letters are gone now and in the last couple of years. And I personally feel that that sends a message. And I think one great little tiny baby step we could take, and I really believe it will come through united prayers of, of women like us, is that we pray that hearts would be softened and touched to consider making that change in the style guide. So I offer you that challenge. Yeah, thanks for that, Mindy. And I, you know, too, I, I, you know, just when you're saying like that, those little, how important those little steps are. And even just when we're talking about it in the temple, I, you know, I could, I felt, I felt the paradox of being like taken aback and feeling it. And then also being like, and there's still so much more work to do, you know, so like, yes. things, so like appreciating the move that's being made, but yes. and still like miles to go before we sleep. 
Exactly. And sometimes it's just a matter of being aware and um, having them pointed out, like, here's one tiny thing. Let's just work on this one. And, you know, I think I'm sure many of you are like me that five years ago, you had a couple of those that you would have loved to see with maybe some temple changes and they've they've happened. And so I do think it matters that we, um, we figure out precisely what we're asking for. And we ask for really specific blessings and that's something very precise we could ask for. And I don't think it would be, it wouldn't be a huge deal. Like it could happen. It could happen tomorrow. Like, you know, like it's doable. So there's one we can work on. Yeah. I also, I'm going to jump on your bandwagon and um, offer a little um, thing that I do and you can, you know, you guys can choose to pick it up or not, but in my temple recommend interviews, when I'm asked if I believe in um, God, the eternal father and Jesus Christ and in the Holy Ghost, I say yes. And I believe in a heavenly mother. And, awesome. <laughs> and, I've, and I've gotten the most, be- like, I've gotten the most beautiful responses. Like often they're taken aback and then they're like, so do I, you know, like this kind of thing. But I, but I do think our language and the way we communicate matters. So I'm with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, like, Trina has a question and then April. So we'll start with Trina and then we'll go with April. Okay. Um, go ahead and then meet yourself, Trina. Um, I... I think that's a hilarious. That, that's awesome, Liz. I have my temple recommend renewal as right after Christmas. I'm going to do that. Um, I don't have a question about the book because I loaned it out and I haven't gotten it back yet because she's not done. But on the on the heavenly mother top or heavenly parents topic, um, recently I gave a talk in sacrament meeting, and I don't know that I realized I was doing this. But when I finished the talk and I sat down, my husband was like, you never once in the entire talk said Heavenly Father. You always said Heavenly Parents. Mm-hmm. And so that's one way we can just slide. He noticed because he, he, we have conversations about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I don't know that anybody else noticed or or that or if they noticed it was like, oh. Yeah. Um, but my question for you is, how do we generate that patience for these incremental steps that drive me insane? Well, I, I, can I see think Ashley laughing at me. <laughs> I think we celebrate when they come. I mean, I think like you know, we we express joy and gratitude um, verbally with each other and in our prayers and, and are just really feel that joy. Like it just, it just made me so happy to be able to share that with you about the temple recommend test uh, desk today, because I could see on so many of your faces that you felt that joy. And so I think um, acknowledging them with gratitude actually will bring them forth faster, you know, and, and I think too, when we look back, I mean, when you look back five years, at how far we've come on so many things in five years and um right now because i work on uh, in a byu young single adult ward um i'm just really inundated with that younger generation of all these 18 and 19 year olds and it's phenomenal how much they notice things so like they notice when you say heavenly parents and they internalize it they're so young that i think 10 years from now 
they never wouldn't say that because they will have just soaked it in from hearing us say it that way. And so sometimes I think maybe we, we play the long game and we recognize that some of the things will be in the next generation, but it's because of what we're doing now instilling it there. And, and so that's kind of part of where I find that patience, but some days I'm very impatient. So <laughs> don't listen to me. April. Um, I'm, I'm serving as a young women's president right now. And I have a couple of girls that are um, struggling <laughs> with this idea of the, this perception that women are somehow lesser in the church. And um, I would just love to talk a little bit more about how to help them get, um, help, them, help them gain that perspective so that they're not antagonistic towards the priesthood so that they can, yeah. as you were talking about that, how important that partnership is. Um, any, anyone who has any suggestions along that line, I would love to discuss that a little bit. Yeah, well, I think um, I actually, I think teenage girls could really wrap their head around the text of my book. I mean, I don't think it's written beyond them by any means. And for me, um, the thing that really got my research started was feeling just fed up. Like I need to know for myself once and for all do. And at that point, does my heavenly father truly care as much about me as my brothers, because it sure looks like sometimes they're more favored. And it was in that really deep dive into the Hebrew and the phrases, oh, that awful help me. I mean, that's like my least favorite term, right? Because it's been so misapplied. Um, and yet the Hebrew, now that I understand it so much better, the Azer Konegdo is one of my favorite terms because that is such an empowering phrase when you really understand it. And I think a really great starting point with um, the younger generation is help them recognize that the truth is there in the scriptures. It's been mistranslated. It's been you know lost through all the various stages of things but like the seeds of it are really in there and they are powerful. And if we can help them recognize that it's, it's not that we were down here and we're trying to get here and we're like pulling ourselves up. It's that we were here, we fell down here and now we're trying to get ourselves back. And to recognize that there was that period of just this awful decay and it just got messier and messier and we're trying to get out of it. For me, I have seen in my conversations with a lot of, I mean, lots and lots of young women and middle-aged women and older women that understanding that it was actually correct at the beginning is somehow makes us feel better a little bit. Like, oh, we, it was right. And then we lost it and now we can get it back. So, you know, it's not like we're creating something from nothing. It's that we're really truly restoring something that was correct in the beginning. Um, and that's why I think it's so crucial that every member of this church really, truly understand Eve and Adam's story accurately, the true story. So, but I'd love to hear other thoughts too, if people have other great suggestions. Yeah. 
Yeah, it looks like it. Um, in April, I would say to one, bless you. I've been a young woman's president, so I, I feel you and, right. and bless you. <laughs> Lots of prayers to you. Um, and and I, and like and I actually sincerely also commend you for asking those questions and and wondering those things because it it really indicates that they're they're actually in some beautiful hands um, with you as their leader. Um, I would also recommend um, our founders book. And so Nyla McBain found our, founded our organization and she has women at church. If you, um, I'd really recommend getting that book. So good. It has some real like tools and ways of thinking about it um, to help um, make things more visible. But um, let's go Trina and then Melissa. Oh, I just held up the book. It's this oh. one. Um. I had that exact same question, April, for a number of years and how I reconciled it with myself was focusing on Christ himself. Christ delegated the, I, I broke it down to administer and minister and Christ delegated off all of the administer stuff, the logistics, the planning, the money. He delegated that off and Christ took care of the ministry the one-to-one -one work and now as of what three years ago young women are specifically assigned to be ministering sisters um and so that's kind of how I ordered it out in my own head of like I, I still have issues with the administration I am in ward leadership right now um I'm a Relief Society president right now so there is administering to do, but mostly I delegate that off to my counselors and my secretary, and I focus on the ministering. And that's kind of how I reconcile the, the men-women balance to a point. I still have some issues with it, but that, that got me multiple steps forward when I had that big question. So I think Melissa was next. So another book that um, I was going to recommend is The Priesthood Power of Women by Barbara Morgan Gardner. Such yeah. a good book. And I read that with my mom and my sisters. We kind of did like a book club and we read a chapter each week and then would discuss it. And it really was so empowering. I just felt, you know, my place in the church as, and I'm single as a single woman in the church who's older, you know that I have priesthood power as a covenant keeping member of the church and a daughter of heavenly parents. And that was reinforced by reading that book. And I think that that is, could be extremely valuable for your young women to learn that they have priesthood power as covenant keeping members of the gospel. And, and that can, you know, lay a really great foundation for them. Yeah. I, that reminds me, I was just seeing, I think it's, no, I might not be able to find it right now, but there's one uh, by Wendy Ulrich called Living Up to Our Privileges, which is also a really good complementary um, fit with Barbara's book that applies great ways to see how, oh, we can actually do um, very comparable responsibility, duty type of things with our brothers. Um, Wendy has great insights. She's a psychologist. It's just really, really wise. So I recommend that too. Yeah, I also want to point out a comment that um, I think it was Lorraine made in the chat about um, really pointing out that some of this is also cultural um, that we're seeing, you know, that with her in um, New Zealand and the matriarch. Lorraine, do you want to speak a little bit about that? 
Hey everyone. Okay. Hi. Um, yeah, this has come up before on a, a couple of occasions where I've spoken with groups that are largely like American, especially. Um, I have a fellow NZer in the group that I can't see her anymore. Ingrid, she's still there. Um, I mean, it changes from ward to ward, obviously, but it really does come down to like we have a matriarchal society here. Everything it's very Polynesian based, and so everything is very settled. And although in a lot of households where you know, say, oh, the man will have the last say, it, it better be what his wife said, or he's in a whole lot of hurt. Um, so that you know, even in like our our bishops, when we say, oh, our bishop's done that you know we, we know his wife's behind it you know it's not so much um you know I've, I've traveled to america as well and we've visited the wards and and i've sat in some of those lessons and been shocked so i don't i don't know if there's an easy answer for you guys um but it is a little different here and it will be different in other parts of the world again um i can imagine some of them are even worse so I don't know. I, I just speak truth and I'm loud about it. So I'm not that popular sometimes. <laughs> but I still have plenty of friends as well. Yeah. That's great. Any questions on that one? Go ahead. Well, I just, you know, as I'm listening to you, Lorraine, I'm just thinking about how um, just that remembrance that we are, we are a global church and that it really, like, we really have so much to learn from each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and this idea that, and I, and I appreciate like with the things with like, come follow me and the uh, efforts again, miles to go before we sleep, but efforts being made to decentralize Salt Lake City is being, you know, and that we need to like all model it in that way. Um, Cause I think, I think like we have a lot to learn and yeah. what you're talking about is an area, I think of growth for us. Mm. I, I think so too. And I, I just, I don't know if any of you guys are, some of you might be old enough like me. Um, when the instruction came out for ward councils and the ward council structure changed, I was primary president at the time. And our dear Bishop, who is from Utah, had gone through this. Um, he married a New Zealand girl, met her on her mission, good choice. Um, so he'd gone through this kind of like, dive in the deep end of New Zealand culture. He'd been here about four years at that point. And the instruction was to change the structure of the ward council, have it not be about everyone just report their little thing, but involve the woman in talking and have the woman, you know, do this, have the sisters do this. And he read it all out and he looked up and he's like, I don't think we have that problem. And I'm like, that's a good thing. That's a really, really good thing. Because we had always done that. You know, in fact, it would probably be hard for the men to get a word in. Um, so, you know, it's, it, I think it depends on your ward structure, the people you're working with. Um, the times I've taught young women, some of those issues have come up. And indeed myself, when I was a young woman, I had some of the same kind of, you know, how do you tell me what to do? I'm not gonna listen to you. Um, but those are men that have issues of their own um, and it's, it's not gospel. So stick to gospel and don't teach culture. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> I try. I wanted to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, about the brave choice of Eve. You, I mean, we have you have the Instagram account, Brave Like Eve. Um, and so can, can we, I mean, I think in this room, we, we kind of have a sense of that, but can you unpack that more? Like, really, what does that mean? And like, how, 
how can we right now be brave like her? And what, what does that call actually mean and look like? Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely can. Um, yeah. Sometimes I speak exactly to this point in firesides or whatever. And I think, um, I think the two really tricky things of their story that even our young women, if they have read the Genesis account or the Moses account, maybe you're picking up on right off the bat is first this idea that how is it fair that she was given these conflicting commandments, right? They look at that and they think that's so unfair. And, and first I would say um, that First of all, in other faith traditions, they don't see that as con- those as contradictory because it's unique to us that we recognize and believe that they couldn't have children in the garden. Um, other faith traditions think, well, of course they could have. And so why on earth did they leave paradise? Well, I agree. If they could have had children in the garden, why did they leave? Well, they could have stayed. But the, the way it was designed to be these mutually exclusive options was so crucial because it forced a choice. You know, if they, either way, they were going to obey one and disobey the other. They couldn't just sit idly by and not choose something. They had to do something. And so I think that first element is so critical to appreciate how real life that is. We, I mean, we are constantly being faced with um, pickles and dilemmas and conundrums and all these things and really difficult situations to choose between. And there are some fabulous quotes. Um, I probably can't find it fast enough here, but one of my favorites, oh, maybe I can't actually, is um, Elder Widsow, uh, John A. Widsow, ages ago, made such a beautiful statement about that where he said, um, he said he called this the heavenly law of love for others. What a, what a great law to be familiar with. He says in life, all must choose at times. Sometimes two possibilities are good. Neither is evil. Usually, however, one is of greater import than the other. When in doubt, each must choose that which concerns the good of others, the greater law, rather than that which would chiefly benefit ourselves, the lesser law. The greater law must be chosen, whether it be law or thing. That was the choice made in Eden. Now, you maybe are familiar with that quote because that's where Beverly Campbell pulled her title from of her books, even the choice made in Eden. But there are several really great quotes like that from general church leaders recognizing that we're frequently given this a difficult choice and we have to decide. And that's agency. Again, agency is absolutely fundamental to this project. And we are forced to have to decide for ourselves which one is more important. And I think um, in that regard, um, her her courage is incredible and, and hugely applicable to every single one of us because she did choose the harder thing in order to bless her posterity, all of us. And, and I also believe, and we have lots of evidence of this, again, lots of different quotes. Um, my favorite is from Elder Holland, who makes crystal clear that they had been taught the entire plan of salvation in the garden. So they knew that sometimes we um, maybe see or hear depictions that make it appear that they're surprised after they've eaten and the savior steps forward offering his atonement as a way to fix that. 
I, I don't think they were surprised because they actually knew the plan of salvation. Um, they didn't know exactly when the right time was to do it. And there was some uncertainty there, which, which leads us to that second main point that even our young women would pick up on immediately on studying the story, even a cursory study of it, is what was that snake doing there? And how is that fair? And was she actually like, what does beguiled mean? Was she tricked? Like, wait a minute, are we on earth because we were tricked into this? Um, I don't think that's it at all. I think that that Lucifer in that circumstance was absolutely crucial because he had to introduce that degree of uncertainty so that they couldn't be sure that it was the right choice. They needed to feel this tug of, oh, I don't know, should I do it? Should I not do it? Am I supposed to do that? Am I not supposed to do that? And um, I think a great example of that, that, that we all have been in either as the child or as the parent or as a mentor, where someone we love is making a really hard decision um, with a lot of good options or maybe no good options, several bad options. And if we're wise, we like put on our poker face, right? We don't want to give any sense of, well, here's what I think you should do because whatever they choose, it's gonna end up being extremely difficult. They will come to hard stuff, whichever way they go, whichever college they decide to go to or whoever they decide to marry or if they decide to go on a mission or not go on a mission. Later down the road, it's gonna get hard. And we don't want to bear the brunt of that where they can eventually turn to us and say, well, you made me do that. You know, I think what really was being set up in Eden was the ability for down the road, even Adam to look at each other and say, well, we chose it. So I guess it's time we better figure it out. And I think that's such a healthy thing when it really can be our agency. I think more and more in mortality, the further along we get, the more I picture it as this really long equation with all these different coefficients. And it's impossible really for us to have a hundred percent agency because other people's agency kind of pulls from ours a little bit. And, and maybe we don't have that full ability to truly choose for ourselves. Um, we've got the baggage of our culture or how we were raised or things that have happened to us and been done to us by other people. And in that sense, the goal is to, to be able to capitalize on as much agency as we have and to trust ourselves to bravely move forward and try, knowing if we make some mistakes, it's okay, we can fix that out and it can be repaired down the road and along the way. Because I think the only way to balance that huge equation is the savior on the other side of it. Only the atonement can balance such a complicated equation. And it's that courage that, that I really think of. I, I love the phrase faithful courage that Eve had. Um, what she was able to do, she was able to do because of how much she trusted her savior, Jesus Christ. She knew him so personally, so well, um, that she could absolutely believe that he would be able to do what he said he would be able to do and would be able to help her through even when things got really messy and thorny as they did. So I would, I would say that. Yeah. It um, looks like Lorraine has a question. Yeah. Or comment. I was going to just say what Minnie's just said, but on page 79 of her <laughs> dear book, entitled, interestingly, 
faithful courage um, <laughs> and i had it here um i've retitled it valiant i call it valiant oh i like um, that that's good I, like that. I think faithful courage yes but i wrote valiant next to it that works more for me um not not downing on you um but i like like the whole part is really good but the quote from elder bedner and that really helped me and the way that mindy describes that whole thing and then carries on from it so the quote from elder bedner is um she said it beautifully explained the powerful connection between trust faith and action noting that assurance and hope make it possible for us to walk to the edge of the light and take a few steps into the darkness expecting and trusting the light to move and illuminate the way the combination of assurance and hope initiates action in the present and I mean that quote from Elder Bedner always stuck with me I mean when I found it in here and the way that Mindy carried on as in the end of that next paragraph um you know because they Adam and Eve felt their life purpose was like they felt empowered through being able to choose and she just said they understood that life in the garden was not the ultimate goal but that exaltation and celestial glory were and for me coming through COVID because I don't do well with crowds don't like that I'm also a germaphobe so COVID restrictions have treated me really well I get to be at home and not touch and hug people and not touch surfaces and everyone's sanitizing but now we're coming out of that here and so that kind of thing really gives me courage that faithful courage that valiant um, and that can be applied to any circumstance we face that if you get to that edge of the light and there is only darkness you just need to trust that the lord's going to put something under your foot when you step forward and and that's only going to come if you have that relationship with christ so it's in doing all these little things that we need to do just little every day little little things like we were saying before those little things all add up and make a difference um again i can reference infuriating unfairness from outer renland yes outer renland and um that just from this last conference that one percent increase from and i don't know who it is but i think you'll know the one i'm talking about we talk to the british cycling team and we love that talk because it just it really does that little incremental thing just builds up and you get that trust and then you can step into the dark so i'm just piling on now about what she's already said but yeah thank you <laughs> thanks Lorraine. um so we're we're actually coming to the end um, but before we do, Mindy, do you want to have um, some last thoughts that you'd like to leave with us? And, and then after Mindy speaks, we have a, a few little housekeeping things you'd like to um, address. But I definitely want to um, give you some final words. Oh, that's so kind. Um, well, I appreciate the questions and comments and thoughts you've all shared. They've been beautiful. And yeah, actually, um, I think I might even ask you, Liz, if you'd put the slides back up and let's go to those last two. I didn't think we were gonna have time for those, but I think Lorraine's comment brings us perfectly to that. And I always like to try to end um, with, um, with Christ and the savior in, in her story. Um, I think that one of the really, really beautiful parts about our understanding of, of Eve and Adam's story is that Christ is everywhere through it. Um, when we look at the interims between the big events that the other uh, members of the Christian faith maybe focus on, we see him there. He was there tutoring them. He was there to provide those glorious coats of skin as protection. 
Um, I think in a, in a very real way, he left the garden with them. He came here to earth to, um, whether by, by a spirit before his mortal ministry or through his mortal ministry to, to show them how to do things and that we could all learn from that. He has always been with us. And the pre-mortal piece of the puzzle is, is just huge. And so I think it's um, just amazing. And just to wrap up kind of with the idea of angels again, like I began, um, some of you may know that uh, President Bruce R. McConkie spoke out once and said that he really suspected that um, the angel who comforted Christ in the Garden of Eden would most likely have been Michael B or Adam, because who else would have a more personal reason to share um, and to support him? And, and I would, I mean, let's think about that. Who else might have an even better reason to help than Adam? I love this depiction by Franz Schwartz. Looks an awful lot like a female angel to me. And then if you go to the next slide, Liz, um, we have this quote from, from the scholar Andrew Skinner, who's done some beautiful writing, but I think this is amazing. He points out that the Savior's atoning work in, in Gethsemane is directly linked to Adam's transgression, which brought about the fall of man. The creation, the fall, and the atonement are inextricably linked as the three pillars of eternity, the three central events upon which the Father's plan rests. Who better than Adam to aid and assist the Savior during his time of extreme distress? than he whose actions had brought about mortality. Who better to thank the savior for paying the debt that his actions had introduced, sin, suffering, and the other myriad effects of the fall than Adam himself? Well, I just would say who better, Eve? I mean, I think that it just would make perfect sense that, that in fact, and again, here we have a very feminine looking angel comforting Christ there in Gethsemane. Um, I think that there are so many profoundly beautiful symbols of, uh, the, of, of Eve being a type of Christ. They share names. They are both named life. They're both named helper in the very divine sense. That's what Azer means of Azer Konegdo. Um, they shared so many profound moments together. And I personally love to picture Eve as that comforting angel. I think that it, it did not have to be a man and it makes perfect sense to me that it could have been Eve doing that. Um, and I just believe that what they did, they very much did in tandem because of their great respect and love for each other. And I'm empowered by by my testimony of that. And I'm grateful for, for the truth that we have that fills in some of the gaps of their story historically and culturally across the ages. Um, and I really truly hope and pray that we can do a great job spreading the word about the truth um, among our own people and all people, because I think it's a story to bless everyone. And I leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Mindy. Um, I, and I really love that um, we, how we start with Eve and we end with Christ. And, um, and it calls to mind too, Valerie Hudson's piece on the two trees, you know, like uh, Eve and, yes. and, and um, the, the, they really are bookends, you know, and, and that, that's really, really beautiful. Um, so thank you so much, Mindy, for being here and spending your evening with us and writing this beautiful book and giving us this gift and this call to um, be brave, 
and to be brave like, like Eve and to really take advantage of this mortal experience um, and to lean into the messiness and to be kind to ourselves and kind to each other. And um, I really felt a sense of community here and that from all of you um, and even those of you who um, even kept your cameras off and maybe just listened, I still, I still felt you and felt like you were um, part of this. And so again, thank you for being here. And I, my hope is that we can continue to support each other um, as we all strive really imperfectly <laughs> to do this work and, um, and to build up um, Zion. I feel very blessed to um, be part of the LDS Women Project and I feel um, blessed to be in this work with all of you. And thank you again, um, Mindy, for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen. You can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook and access our extensive library of interviews with hundreds of LDS women on our website, ldswomenproject.com. Special thanks to the Tina Richardson Trio for our theme music.